You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 28th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, over half of the Thai hostages captured in the October 7th attack have been released. We'll hear about Thailand's diplomatic efforts to return them all home safely. And with rising anti-Semitism around the globe, Australia makes the Nazi salute a criminal offence. I don't think this legislation is a huge threat to freedom of expression. I think it's something that will ultimately only make Australia a safer place to live. After many delays, closing arguments are finally set to begin in the trial of Hong Kong pro-democracy organisers. Plus, flying transatlantic on vegetable oil and the latest business news. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. The temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas has entered its fifth day after a 48-hour extension was agreed yesterday. A Hamas source in Qatar claims 10 hostages will be released at some point today and another 10 on Wednesday. But these numbers have not yet been confirmed by Israel. Of the dozens released so far, 17 were Thai nationals, with a further 15 more still believed to be held in Gaza. The Thai foreign minister and deputy prime minister travelled to Israel yesterday. The two countries have a special bilateral agreement to facilitate the thousands of largely agricultural workers needed by Israel. Francesca Regalado is Nikkei Asia's Thailand correspondent. Francesca, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what can you tell us about these 17 Thai nationals who have been released? What condition were they in? Hi, Vincent. Uh, the 17 hostages, uh, Thai hostages who were freed by surprise on uh, Friday night, were in largely good condition when they were released across the border. They were held in hospital for about 48 hours and underwent physical and psychological tests. Colleagues here in Thailand uh, who were able to speak with their families reported that they were uh, they were well fed uh, while they were in captivity as the as their captors uh, were aware that they were Thai nationals. There are a dozen more believed to be left in captivity on top of around 30 Thais uh, who lost their lives um, in, in the conflict so far. And do we know much about the 10 that are believed to still be being held in Gaza? We do not have much information about that. Uh, since the release of the hostages, the Thai government has been very cautious and asking media in Thailand to exercise caution as well in reporting uh, the details of the hostages, their identities and uh, their families uh, as negotiations are still ongoing. And you mentioned there a number of casualties during that initial attack. What has the sort of national response been in Thai to what's going on? Right. As soon as the conflict broke out because of the sheer number of Thai workers, most of whom are agricultural workers in Israel, um, the government uh, really went into full gear trying to make sure that they could get as many nationals back to Thailand as possible. 
so far, the government has managed to bring back 7,000 um, nationals who wish to return. Uh, a lot of those people uh, came back of their own, uh, own volition uh, or took uh, the government flights out from, uh, from Israel. Many of the captured uh, Thai nationals were working uh, on farms, as I mentioned, um, because of the special arrangement that uh, Thai and Israel gov- Israeli governments have for agricultural labor. And can you tell us more about that relationship? People might not have been aware of it before this conflict. How close allies are Israel and Thailand? So it was a strategic decision on the part of both countries uh, for Israel to replace Palestinian workers with uh, foreign workers. And Thailand has a huge uh, supply of agricultural labor. A lot of the Thai nationals who are still in Israel or have come back from Israel are from the northeast of Thailand, which uh, is the rural part of the country and actually the base for the Pua Thai Party, uh, which is the party of the prime minister. And there was a lot of pressure on the government to be seen to be um, working to bring back these people. So far, it's been uh, the efforts have been well received. And the public satisfaction on the prime minister's overseas performance has actually been higher than his domestic performance. And how hard has the government been lobbying behind the scenes? Because obviously a lot of this is going through Qatar. Have they had to really sort of flex all the diplomatic muscle that they have? Yes, uh, the prime minister himself has uh, been very hands on on this. I'm told that He spent weekends uh, chairing meetings at the foreign ministry in the effort to bring uh, ties back um, himself. And there are also back channels that have been explored through Malaysia to facilitate Thailand's own negotiations apart from uh, the process uh, with Qatar. And that's included as well, talking to Iran. Yes. How has that occurred? We don't have a lot of details about that. But as I mentioned in the beginning, the release of the Thai hostages took even the Thai government by surprise. Um, it was a pleasant surprise, uh, but we weren't expecting that that was going to be part of uh, the ceasefire agreement between Israel and Hamas. Francesca, thank you. That was Francesca Regalado in Bangkok. Now here's Tom Webb with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. A temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas has entered its fifth day, having been extended by 48 hours. Eleven more hostages were released from Gaza in exchange for dozens of Palestinian women and children freed from Israeli jails. Hamas says some of the hostages in Gaza are being held by other armed groups, which could complicate efforts to free them. A rescue team in northern India has reached 41 miners who became trapped in a collapsed tunnel more than a fortnight ago. A pipe inserted through the debris will now be used to extract the workers. Flower garlands have been brought to the site to welcome them home. And a collection of historic artefacts has been returned to Ukraine after a years-long legal battle with Russia. The items were on loan to an Amsterdam museum when Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. Both Moscow and Kyiv claim the artefacts, but a Dutch court ruled they belong to Ukraine. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Tom. To Canberra next, where Anthony Albanese's Labour government has announced it will ban Nazi salutes. The move is an about turn for the government, who earlier this year excluded the salute from a bill banning the swastika and other Nazi symbols. 
The Prime Minister has been under pressure to tackle a rise in anti-Semitism in recent weeks. The Executive Council of Australian Jewry says that there has been a nearly 500% rise in anti-Semitic incidents since war broke out between Israel and Hamas. Earlier, Monocle's Lillian Fawcett spoke to Dr Ben Walters, a postdoctoral research fellow in the Democracy and Accountability Programme at the Australia Institute, a progressive think tank. Overall, I think banning Nazi salutes and Nazi symbols in Australia is a good thing. I think limiting community exposure to hate symbols will only seek to make our community safer. As long as we have the necessary contextual exemptions for religious, academic, educational, artistic, literary, etc. purposes, then I don't think this legislation is a huge threat to freedom of expression. I think it's something that will ultimately only make Australia a safer place to live. Anthony Albanese's government have changed their position on this issue. Just in June, they proposed a ban on Nazi symbols, which excluded the Nazi salute. And the decision on whether to ban the salute was left up to individual states. Just last week, Labour MPs on a security committee recommended against banning it. Why has Albanese changed tack on this and even gone against MPs in his own party? I would say that the government has been prompted to act considering the rise in anti-Semitic incidents across Australia occurring since October 7th. I think it's important that the government continue to act to protect vulnerable communities across the board, including Jewish Australians, Muslim Australians and Indigenous Australians, you know, during this extremely difficult time and just as a general practice. Going back then to that June bill, which was proposed to ban all Nazi symbols, but as we mentioned, excluding the Nazi salute, it hasn't come into force yet. And the proposal today to ban the Nazi salute would be an amendment to that original bill. But how was it received in Australia? Was there any particular backlash? I think that most people want to live in safer communities free from vilification, Um, They also want to make sure that the laws they live under are fair and don't result in genuine breaches of their free expression. And that is a fair concern. Striking the balance is the most important thing here. You know, this will ensure that Australia remains not only free and open, but also a safe country for all who live here. It sounds like you do believe then that banning the Nazi salute and banning Nazi symbols will actually help to reduce anti-Semitic acts in Australia because some people would argue that banning particular groups or acts or symbols actually just gives these extremists ammunition to say that they're being oppressed, that they're victims, and it might encourage them more to lash out against authority. I mean, I think this sort of weighs in a little bit into the cancel culture debate that we've seen. And I think that there's a lot of problems around cancel culture. But ultimately, in many ways, cancelling people or cancelling hate ideologies does work. I mean, if you consider, you know, figures that were super prominent only a few years ago, people like Milo Yiannopoulos or Alex Jones, these people were all over the internet, all over our screens. And now we barely hear about them because action was taken to silence them and to silence the abhorrent ideologies that they were putting forward. And is this a bipartisan issue in Australia? Has there been any support or resistance from the opposition Liberal Party? 
No, this is definitely an issue that has resounding bipartisan support. The Liberal Party actually put forth two of their own bills trying to outlaw Nazi symbols in Australia before the government put forward their own version of the legislation. So I think across the board, everybody wants to see Nazi symbols not public displayed in Australia. Get them out of here. Finally then, with any policy that limits certain speech or acts, there's a balance to strike between protecting people from harmful behaviours and not overly limiting free speech or expression. Do you have any concerns about freedom of speech with regards to this policy? Yeah, of course. Of course I do. I think that we always have to be concerned about any legislation that seeks to limit the freedoms of the people of a nation. I think ultimately the bill is justified because it makes no sense to protect the right to free expression for people who want to use that right expressly to deny the freedoms and humanity of of another group of people. But also we always have to take into consideration that there are situations where we need to display these symbols. We need it for understanding history. We need it for education. We need to be able to use it in our art. So these things always need to be considered when we are putting forward this kind of legislation. Ben Walters there speaking to Monocle's Lillian Fawcett. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Closing arguments are expected to begin in Hong Kong today in the high-profile trial of 16 pro-democracy activists and legislators more than a 1,000 days after they were arrested by National Security Police. Hong Kong prosecutors allege they're part of a group of 47 who violated the city's sweeping national security legislation by organising an unofficial election primary in July 2020 as part of a plot to gain a majority in the semi-democratic legislature and veto the government's budget bills. If convicted, they face a maximum sentence of life imprisonment. Shibani Matani is an international investigative correspondent for The Washington Post and the author of Among the Braves about Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement. She joins us now down the line from Singapore. Shibani, how has this trial gone so far for the defendants? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, basically the government's uh, allegation, right, is that they were staging this elaborate conspiracy to subvert the government by, you know, organizing this really unofficial um, primary election. Um, But so far, I mean, all that prosecutors have really presented uh, evidence based on social media posts, evidence based on their very public writings. So what the defense will be arguing is that, you know, how could this be a conspiracy when it was one of the most public things in Hong Kong at the time? It was very well um, publicized exactly what they wanted to do. And it was it was a political, um, you know, process that was then totally legal uh, until the passage of the national security law, uh, which introduced this whole gray area in Hong Kong, right? And, and you know, how could they have expected to know, um, you know, what would happen under this new law uh, when it was passed back then? And how significant have the delays been in these proceedings and why have they arisen? Yeah, I mean, I think... 
you know, to observers, that's been the most sort of frightening thing about the way justice is delivered in Hong Kong today. Um, you know, it was, as you as you note, right, more than a thousand days since they were arrested. The trial, um, you know, has itself has taken 10 months. Um, this is what happens when you, you charge such a big group of people. Uh, as you know, you know, it was 47 who were arrested um, and, and charged in the beginning. And this trials for the 16 who have pled not guilty. The rest of them have already pled guilty. Um, but you think about those who already have have essentially, you know, said, yeah, sure, we, we've confessed this crime and they're still sitting around in pretrial detention, um, not knowing what their fate is going to be. Right. And I think like this has been one of the most demoralizing thing um, for pro-democracy advocates, for the political prisoners who are in, in jail in Hong Kong today, sort of being stuck in this endless limbo. Right. And, and you know, facing these uh, endless delays um, and, and not being able to kind of, you know, seek kind of closure or, or, or sort of move on um, at all. Right. From this prosecution. And these 16 haven't taken any kind of plea deal. Uh, What do we expect the verdict for them to be in the sentence as well? I mean, so far, um, it's been, you know, pretty depressing watching national security trials in, in Hong Kong. Um, no one's been acquitted um, or, or found not guilty. Um, you know, the prosecution has been able to kind of deliver uh, the kind of sentencing ranges they, they want in these cases and including in, in sedition cases, too, which have sort of been happening adjacent to these national security cases. Um, the interesting thing here is among those 16, uh, there were a few people who served as prosecution witnesses. Um, so that, that's been um, a kind of an, an interesting sort of um, snippet there. And it's going to be interesting to see whether those who have essentially kind of helped the government with the prosecutions will get a reduced sentence or not. Um, but really, I mean, for the organizers or, or who the government claimed to be the organizers um, of this uh "Quote unquote subversive plot," who's um, you know Benny Tai, um, who was known for his role in, in the Umbrella Movement back in 2014. I think um, that there is a lot of fear that they could be facing sentences that that are very lengthy because the the law itself stipulates up to life in prison um, as as a potential uh, punishment, right, for these crimes. And was the sentence always pretty much a done deal? Are they going to be made an example of? Yeah, I mean, I think basically it remains to be seen, but, you know, it's the whole credibility of the Hong Kong judiciary um, that's on, on 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 showcase as well, right? I mean, I think, you know, this is such a big sweeping case. It involves people who are extremely high profile, um, including, you know, Joshua Wong and Benny Tide, like I mentioned before, even though they've pled guilty to those charges. I mean, I think uh, everybody will be watching um, to see how this case is handled as a barometer for the kind of freedoms Hong Kong has left and, you know, what 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 credibility remains of its of its judiciary and its legal system for sure and just for outside listeners to, to explain so the sentences if they are custodial do those still take place in hong kong or could they be moved to mainland china so, so far, you know, they've been trying all these national security cases in Hong Kong itself. Under the law, there's obviously, a, you know, there, there is a, a room for, for prosecutors to, to, to seek uh, that the, the trial um, be conducted in mainland China. But so far, that hasn't happened. And I think the expectation is that they'll serve those sentences within Hong Kong itself, which has been, you know, a, a small kind of silver lining here. But I think the indication, you know, Beijing wants to send is that Hong Kong's courts can be trusted to essentially implement this draconian law, right, that it doesn't need to be done by by China itself, that the Hong Kong judges, prosecutors can be trusted to execute their, their will as well. 
And looking at the judiciary itself in Hong Kong now, I mean, there's a shortage of judges. Nearly one fourth of judicial posts are vacant. Uh, part of that might be down to the fact that there are U.S. proposals to sanction judges in mm-hmm. national security cases. Is that a big deterrent? And why is there that gap? Did some of them use, for instance, the visas like the BNO, the British National Overseas Visas, and leave Hong Kong in recent years? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think the credibility of of, of the judiciary took a serious hit, right, when the national security law came into place. Essentially, it it, it sort of, um, you know, imposed, superimposed uh, a mainland judicial system on parts of the Hong Kong judicial system, which, you know, as you know, is meant to have common law courts that are meant to be, you know, independent, right, of um, anything happening in, in China under the one country, two systems formulation. So, yeah, I mean, certainly a lot of lawyers, a lot of prosecutors and judges themselves, too, um, have left uh, Hong Kong, be it, to, you know, Canada where a lot of Hong Kong people have citizenship to, to the UK, as you say, with the BNO track. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of people who don't want to stay and, and, and kind of be complicit in this system, right? Because, you know, how can you, you you divide the system into being just one for kind of political trials and political prisoners and another for, you know, arbitration and M&A and so on, right? It, it's, at some point, it's going to bleed into each other. and It's very hard to separate those two things. And one thing that's still a factor in play is, in this uh, case, a UK Privy Council ruling on sedition that could influence the handling of this and other similar cases. Is that something that China is looking to try to get rid of? Well, the yeah, the, the sedition thing is interesting. I mean, it's been used actually by the Hong Kong government or Hong Kong, you know, sort of prosecutors, kind of revived from colonial times and uh, sort of... Uh, essentially, you know, uh, brought out from 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 like dusted off and, and now used against um, a lot of political kind of cases as, as well, right? So um, sedition, we've seen sedition being used um, to essentially criminalize speech um, critical of the Hong Kong government, critical of the police, of people, you know, even posting um, stuff while they're overseas and then coming back from Hong Kong and being charged under sedition. Um, so actually, no, I, mean, I think the Hong Kong government and prosecutors uh, seem very happy to use a mixture of colonial laws um, that have always been, you know, in Hong Kong, and the new law brought in by Beijing, the national security law, and combine those two to create a very effective system of criminalizing essentially speech and thought um, within the city. Shivani, thank you. You're listening to the briefing on Monocle Radio. Well, it's time now to get the latest business headlines with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Ewan, thanks for joining us again. Central bankers have been discussing their fight against inflation. Hello, Vincent. Yeah, central bankers gathering at a little conference in Hong Kong today. All the great and the good are there. They were discussing the uh, monetary policy outlook. And the key headline, uh, which doesn't really sound that uh, exciting given their enormous salaries, is that the policy, the the outlook remains uncertain. It's just very tricky to know where monetary policy is heading. The head of the Reserve Bank of Australia says she's facing a wide range of uncertainties and experiences. The Bank of Spain governor uh, talking about bank profitability says that uh, it's held up pretty well. Remember that interest rates rising is a tailwind for bank profits, but at some point there could be credit risks uh, starting to uh, emerge and there may be losses uh, in assets. 
Uh, Bloomberg spoke to the Bank of England Deputy Governor Dave Ramsden. He's had some interesting comments to say about the UK's inflation uh, situation. Uh, he says it's uh, becoming increasingly more and more homegrown, which is a problem for the Bank of England. Uh, he says that monetary policy will have to stay restricted for an extended uh, period of time, so interest rates uh, higher for longer. That is broadly the consensus uh, from markets around the world, in fact. In order to get inflation uh, back down again, uh, the UK's inflation target is 2%. It's currently at 4.6%. But he says, if you look at the picture for services inflation, which is almost half the uh, basket of consumer goods measured in the inflation numbers, that's everything from restaurants to gym memberships and uh, cinema tickets, that is running at 6.6%. So that is a full two percentage points uh, higher than general inflation. Uh, and he says that's proving much stickier than the Bank of England was uh, expecting. Uh, and that is a problem. He says that's driven by wage growth. Of course, uh, services are very labour intensive. Wages are rising by 7% at the moment uh, in the UK. And that is uh, feeding into the uh, inflation situation. He says getting that services inflation down uh, is going to be particularly tricky. Uh, markets have been pricing in where they think interest rates uh, are heading. Uh, and they've been uh, pushing back their bets as to when rates will be cut. Uh, the expectation as early as a couple of weeks ago was that the first rate cut in the UK would come perhaps around about June time. Now the market is betting on August next year. So they think inflation will remain stickier for longer, and that will keep interest rates uh, higher for longer as well. That's the best uh, thinking from the markets at the moment. And a new survey has revealed differing attitudes to working from home between Paris and London. Yeah, this is a Bloomberg intelligence survey of office workers in the two cities. Uh, we found that uh, 20% of workers in Paris uh, are not allowed to work from home at all, whereas in London that number is less than 5%. There's some interesting uh, data on uh, just why that is uh, so, or just why uh, people uh, prefer to go into the office or to stay at home. And perhaps it might not surprise you that transportation costs uh, are cited by nearly 60% of workers in London uh, as a factor why they prefer to stay at home. Of course, London is a very big city uh, spread out uh, and the transport is expensive. So lots of people have to commute in from outside the city. It get very, very costly. Uh, only a quarter of respondents in the French capital cite those costs. I guess the public transport is cheaper in Paris and it is uh, more dense as well. But people do live in uh, very small flats uh, in the French capital. So perhaps that's another reason driving them into the office. Uh, flexible working, of course, was uh, something which companies kept on after the pandemic. It's an important way of uh, attracting talent. Uh, and I think some companies are dialing back on this a little bit. Uh, the labour market has shown some signs of cooling uh, in the UK over the past uh, year or so, but it does still remain rather tighter than it is in France. Unemployment in the UK uh, is less than 4.5%. In France, it is 7.5%. So there is a competition for workers uh, in the UK. And I think flexible working is expected by a lot of people now. So that is something uh, which many companies uh, are stuck with, whether they like it or not. Mm, a lot of reporting for people going for jobs, being told in, here in the UK that you can have fully flexible working. And then when it comes to negotiating the deal, it's suddenly, oh, you've got to do a couple of days in a week. So it definitely is something that they're still trying to lure people in with. Uh, Ewan Potts, thank you very much.
Now, the first transatlantic flight by a large passenger plane powered only by alternative fuels has taken off in the past hour from London's Heathrow, bound for New York's JFK airport. The Boeing 787, operated by Virgin Atlantic without any passengers on board, will be filled with 50 tonnes of so-called sustainable aviation fuels, which can be made from a variety of sources, including crops, household waste and cooking oils. Airlines hope it could provide a greener way to carry passengers, but environmental campaigners accuse them of greenwashing, with the only answer being to reduce the volume of air travel. Murdo Morrison is Head of Strategic Content at Flight Global. Murdo, thank you for joining us. Firstly, how's this flight going so far? Yes, it's uh, it's going pretty well. Um, I mean, Virgin are pretty confident that uh, this is going to be, you know, just like any other normal flight. Uh, if you're aboard the plane, it will feel like any flight. It's just that the fuel is different and the fuel uh, performs exactly the same way as uh, conventional aviation fuel. And that, my next question was, how does the fuel impact the speed and distance planes can go? And if they had to modify it in any way? Well, not really. I mean, the whole point of uh, sustainable aviation fuel is that it performs pretty much exactly the same as as conventional fuel. So, if you are um, if you're flying on the aircraft, you don't uh, you don't notice any difference in in performance. I mean, there might be marginal differences, but that's not really the issue with sustainable aviation fuel. The issue is its cost and its availability. And uh, the problem is at the moment that. Uh, you know, no matter how virtuous the industry wants to be, there just isn't a sustainable aviation fuel available uh, to, you know, even if the industry decided, uh, you know, tomorrow, next week to go all SAF. Um, at the moment, uh, SAF is only really powering less than less than 0.1% of all flights in the world. Uh, so it, it really has got a very, very long way to go. Yeah, the fuel costs roughly three to five times more than regular fuel. How difficult is it to make and why are airlines so interested in it, if that's the case? Well, it, well, to, to answer the first question, yes, it, it, it is expensive to make. And, you know, you can get into all sorts of arguments about supply and demand. Uh, you know, if uh, if the, 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 the resources to make it were, were increased, you know, the price, the price would inevitably come down. So if supply went up, the price would come down. It's not it's not really a, a demand issue. It's more of a supply issue. Um, and uh, the second your second question was, sorry, was. Uh, uh, and why are, in, why are airlines so interested in it, given the cost? Because this is really at the moment the only um, this is really the only the only solution that airlines have at the moment reducing their, their carbon footprint short of, as you said in the intro, just, you know, having fewer flights or, or fewer people flying. So airlines are interested in this, in that it it, it will have an impact on, uh, eventually, on uh, on airlines' carbon footprint. I mean, at the moment, it's tiny. It's, it's, it's less than negligible. Um, but this flight is important symbolically and it's a proof of concept. And if... Um, if availability of of SAF sustainable aviation fuel can increase, you know it could make a difference. Now, whether it's the the key to um, carbon neutrality for the airline industry, I, I, you know I don't think that is the case. I think that pro- the answer probably lies in the future with um, with different technology, with perhaps uh, hydrogen powered uh, aircraft. But that really is a very very long way off. We're talking at least a 
a decade before we even see the sort of the the early technologies uh, emerge in in that area. Murdo Morrison, thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Tom Webb. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Steph Chongu. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. Thank you.